it's easier for us as a community, as a society, to see imagination as a thing that grows out of somebody's background, you know, their society, their family, their sexuality, their race, their class, whatever. It's easier for us to connect those things. We're interested in the roots, what the French call the terroir, you know, the, the ground in which the grapes grow. So I think, you know, partly to do with journalism, you know, we are really interested in finding out where somebody comes from as a human being and therefore where their imagination comes from. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I'm really happy that my guest this week is filmmaker Mark Cousins. I've been a fan of his work for a long time. Uh, the film of his that meant a ton to me came out a couple years ago, The Eyes of Orson Welles. Probably he's best known for a 15-hour documentary he did back in 2011 called The Story of Film, an Odyssey. Uh, I think why I wanted to talk to him is he is somebody able to tell stories in such a, a kind of gentle yet visceral way. You can feel his passion for the subject and yet he presents it in a way that is unique to, to anybody else I know working in documentary film. And uh, this was a really interesting conversation. I really liked him. And the way he approached the Orson Welles film through Orson's artwork and Orson's path as a young man, looking ahead at his life, uh, as Orson famously said, I started at the top and worked my way down. Uh, it's a wonderful film. And I, Cousins, even though I've not seen all of his work, I want to see all of his work because everything he touches is just really interesting and fascinating. and. His curiosity is truly infectious. So I hope you enjoy this week's guest, Mark Cousins on Tourist Information. Uh, yeah, I, I, I had a, a bullying thing when I was a little kid that just um, catching an interview with Mike Tyson talking about while he was in prison for rape, all he was doing was reading the classics of literature and then discussing his experience being uh, really tormented and bullied as a kid, I thought, boy, if he, he sounds so sensitive and vulnerable, and yet he's created this construct out of being victimized, turning into this kind of victimizing presence. Uh, I thought, boy, I need, to, I need to look at some books that he's talking about and books about him. And, and then, so I went to a library and a boxing gym, both for the first time, and it really, changed my life that's great that's great bullying i mean i was very badly bullied as well and i think it's fascinating that it can be formative and you know when i was growing up it, schools had no bullying policies and uh, anti-bullying policies and i think it's a lot better now but those of us who went through that process you know we created a kind of exoskeleton or something didn't we definitely well what you know that's one thing I was very drawn to your your work that there's a quality to it that does seem not raw but but it's it's very sincere and authentic and uh, you know making movies about Orson Welles is one thing but but having a tattoo of his signature on your arm um, there is something very childlike about it where it risks you even said in the film that it would come off maybe childish and I part of me just felt like 
there have been tattoos that I've wanted to get, but I haven't because I don't want to be judged for them. And I feel like your filmmaking also follows that kind of quality of there's something daring about it and also vulnerable, um, which I think most filmmakers don't do that. They're, they're much more posing a little bit in a kind of crouch at times in a way that you really don't. Uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, hopefully that's right. Thank you for saying that. A lot of filmmakers want to be professional, and professional means a certain way of looking, and it used to mean wearing a suit and having a business card and a, a lot of those things, you know, and uh, the vulnerability, vulnerability is closely related to creativity and insight. And Pablo Picasso said, you know, all children are artists, and so that sense of vulnerability and play and innocence almost and wonder and awe all these things are open things and they are acknowledging how much there is to know and learn and how little I certainly know and learn and therefore I'm the opposite of a scholar who professes great knowledge you know I'm a I'm a sort of you know a childlike uh, sponge absorbing lots of information and somebody like Orson Welles is perfect for that, you know, because there's so much to absorb with him. Yeah. Well, I was, I was thinking of two terms that came to me about Orson Welles, and, and I was also watching some, some of your history of cinema exploration. I mean, there's so many episodes. I'm going to go through all of them. Um, but there's a quality of, of that Russian term, um, ostrinini, Looking yes. at something for in a new way that you do a lot, and you certainly do it with Orson Welles, somebody that's fascinated me since I was a kid, and and yet there's also a quality of this epistolary. You're you're sending letters almost from some place yes. that's removed, and yet it's very intimate. That is a quality I really enjoy. But I, I wondered where you develop these two approaches in your work. Yeah, I think you're. But on what a what a good eye you have, Bryn. And so both of those are key things for me. Ostrenini, that idea, Sklovsky, is that it? I can't remember pronounce his name exactly. You know that idea that you that we're we're all tired of looking, and we're so familiar with looking that we have to defamiliarize the world. We have to re-see a sunset for the remarkable thing it is, you know, and I, I'm very interested in that. And um, so in my work, I don't know where it comes from, you know, maybe my upbringing or whatever. I certainly have had a sense of trying to see a new things. And when you take on a subject like Orson Welles, you know, how many books have there been on Orson Welles? How many films have there been in Orson Welles? Lots and lots. And so when you take on a big subject like that, you want to try and see it anew. And that brings me to the second part of your question about letter writing or epistolatory. How do you how do you how do you tell a story? You know, who when who are you talking to when you're telling a story? And I've always thought I've always been interested in that que that question as a filmmaker. Uh, if who am I talking to, from where and when? And I realised with my film, The Eyes of Orson Welles, I wanted to talk directly to him, um, from the places where he was, and that made it more intimate, more personal, hopefully a bit more poetic, less. Um, 
objective and I'm, I've, I've become increasingly sort of suspicious of the objective worldview of the all-knowing scholar. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you, you go to New York and, and you find that storage of, of all of his wonderful drawings and paintings. And I made a friend in 2016, uh, Dr. Frank Brady, who wrote Citizen Wells, um, I, I was writing a book about the chess world championships and he was a very close friend with Bobby Fischer and I had first discovered him as I mentioned to you with Mike Tyson sending me to the library to read all of these books. Um, I saw the Citizen Wells and Orson Wells and I always had a round face as a kid so when I looked at Wells's face I thought oh like it was uncomfortable for me to see somebody who was a, a movie star. I wasn't familiar with his work at the time and, and encountered Frank Brady through, through that book many years ago. And then meeting him, uh, we became close friends and I was trying to badger him to get all of the material he was using for his book on Wells, which was also kept in a storage facility. But he's now in his mid-80s and just said, I'm too tired, I don't want to bother. And there you went and did the same thing. It was just marvelous to uh, unlock. There's still so many mysteries with Wells, I guess, isn't there? Well, yeah, I think because there were lots of contradictions within yeah. Wells, you know, you know, he was extremely interested in other human beings, and that was a very rich, as rich aspect of his life. Extremely interested in people who d diverse populations and yet and yet he had this huge sense of self so how do you reconcile those things that's a kind of mystery you know how did this m m young man who was brought up in you know kenosha who you know had a very literary education how did he become one of the great visual thinkers of the 20th century yeah so that's a mystery as well. You know, the more I think we know about neuroscience and brain chemistry, perhaps uh, the more Orson Welles is understandable as a product of neurochemistry. But um, certainly I think mystery is a good word. And it's, you know, a lot of people think we know everything about Orson Welles, but I think mystery is a good word. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. I was just... Uh interviewing Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, who did a big film on Ernest Hemingway, and, and the intersection of Wells and Hemingway is a very amusing yes. <laughs> fertile place to go. Um, but I, I was... Spanish Earth. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, I mean, do you believe that that fist fight between them actually happened? Um, I personally don't believe that that happened. Certainly, it's been highly, so highly mythologized yeah. that I don't quite believe it, no. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I liked about their film, and, and I, I raise it because I think it applies to Orson as well, is they bring up Hemingway's brain injuries, that nine major concussions. Uh, Dr. Andrew Farrow wrote a whole book called Hemingway's Brain and said, quote, he was a textbook case of CTE. You have PTSD going back to when he's 18, 40 years of prodigious drinking, um, and, and a family history riddled with suicide, psychosis, and depression. Um, it was interesting just to view him in a, a recontextualized kind of way as we're gaining understanding in neuroscience and, and that sort of thing. Um, when I went to see Mank, uh, 
and I'm curious to hear your your impressions of that film. It just seems like Wells is still somebody that's like a daddy figure for so many prominent filmmakers that they just can't get rid of him, and and he seems to antagonize them with his legacy, or at least maybe the legacy of Citizen Kane, that they didn't have that Citizen Kane at the beginning of their career. I wonder uh, how you see him looming still in cinema, because he still seems so contentious for filmmakers. It seemed that way for Fincher. It still seems that way for Spielberg. Yeah, I think, you know, I have to say as a more macho type of filmmaker feels that he, or maybe even she, needs to fight shadow box with Orson Welles to wrestle him in some way to box with him. You know, I've never felt that, you know, I've never, I've just felt so incredibly grateful that I saw his films in my teens. But yeah, a lot of filmmakers do feel that he's someone to take on in some way. And I think that, that maybe um, Fincher, felt that with Mank and that perhaps explains how unreconciled Mank is and how it is, in my opinion, a certain kind of artistic failure. Um, but that's only my opinion, obviously. But um, I think that particularly for American filmmakers, when you're brought up in with a studio system where there's a very obvious mainstream and then there are... Um, sidelines or alternative filmmakers. Orson Welles mixed all that up. He was an experimental filmmaker in the studio system. And that was sort of hard to do. You know, some people did that before, Joseph von Sternberg, etc. But it was basically very hard within American culture to mix low and high culture in the same art and Orson Welles did that and that's why he's perplexing I think to an American culture in particular which seems to like a certain kind of stratified thing either we have the popular you know entertainment stuff from the studios or we have the countercultural stuff from New York or wherever you know and he didn't you know he mixed all that up and hence I think the almost Freudian need to wrestle with him yeah well it seems like i mean kind of it's similar a little bit and i guess in a sense with hemingway like that first novel the sun also rises how it on the one hand is so avant-garde with the style reinventing the english language but also a major popular success mm -hmm. and it's interesting that wells had a period where he was such a prime he's on what time magazine when he's 23 24 Mm -hmm. um, but I like to I like to get back to what you said in terms of your. I, I'm interested in what formed you as an artist, and you mentioned the bullying thing. Can you walk me through where you grew up and sort of what your experiences were like then? Sure, I grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, and this was you know a friendly place but it was also a place of the famous troubles the the fighting between nationalists and unionists and my mother was a catholic and my father was a protestant so oh. it was a slightly romeo and julio juliet setup you know uh, that this this gave to me a certain timidity i would say or or anxiety about um 
about the outside world. And if you add bullying into that, there was a sort of double reason for me to go into my shell, like many teenagers go into their shell. I was um, terrible at reading and writing. I was probably have had some kind of diagnosis in the school system now, but I was very, very good at visual things and physics and science and and I was extremely good at this stuff, you know, and I, I just naturally I could understand the most complex things that teachers taught me. And so I, it, it became clear that I had a certain kind of brain that was good at structure, at, at engineering things, at um, visual things. The sort of person, you know, our, our football teams are full of people like that and our art schools are full of people like that and our, our, our engineering colleges are full of people like that. So that was me. And then I moved here to Scotland to study and I studied art history and film, a bit of film history and philosophy. And um, I, so that kind of timidity graded, graded some things terrible at other things um, was what formed me, I think. You know, you sort of you protect yourself in those circumstances. So what were the, what were the films that really, I don't know, were transcendent for you at that age or, or artists or writers? Yeah. So because I came from a very working class background, uh, you know, my father was a motor mechanic, for example, there were no books in our house. And so there was no influence. There was nobody saying, here's what's good to read. And that was brilliant for me. Uh, uh, it meant that I could discover, I was like virgin snow. I could walk on, you know, I could discover everything for myself, as it were, you know. Um, so the films were on TV, Touch of Evil of Orson Welles, Hitchcock's Psycho, horror movies in general. I loved horror movies. I was the era of seeing uh, The Exorcist, for example. Um, and... Books, because I was a slow reader, I didn't really read many books, but I um, I looked at lots of books of paintings. The paintings of Paul Cezanne just excited me almost like it was it was almost I was almost scared at how excited I was by those those paintings um, and architecture. I was ex really excited by architecture as well. Uh, so it was very visual and it was very, you know, in Northern Ireland, we looked very much west to America rather than east to England. And, and so American culture, country and Western music, for example, was, you know, big things. I'm still very moved by songs like Wichita Lineman, Linesman, and I'm very moved by American cultural culture in general, you know, and so that was the, that was my formation. What do you, what do you make of this? I think there was the book, uh, Orson Welles at Breakfast, I want to say, uh, yes. with, with Jaglum, I believe. Yes. I believe yes. the director Jaglum. Um, I wish I heard all of those tapes. I've only heard little bits of them, I think, from the BBC, did some podcasts with them. They're so funny to yes. hear Orson with that little dog. Um, but why does he have such antagonism for, for Alfred Hitchcock's films? He's so brutal about Vertigo and um, and that other mar rear window. I, yes. I just wonder what you made of that. I didn't love the Jaglan book, to be honest. I think that, you know, he didn't... 
I don't think that Orson Welles fully consented to that book, but anyway, that's a separate issue. And I, 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 I think that Orson Welles, you know, he, you know, he disliked a lot of filmmakers. He hated Antonioni. He he disliked Hitchcock films. You know, I think that because Orson Welles, he had a kind of super identification with European culture whether it was Cervantes or whether it was Shakespeare, et cetera. Um, and this was wonderful, of course, and this was en enriched his whole life. But a film like Vertigo, even though it comes from a French novel, is quintessentially American in some ways. That's the weird paradox. Englishman takes a French novel and turns it into a boldly American picture. And I think that Orson Welles, because he fought the studios so hard that he took against filmmakers like Hitchcock, who seemed to go with the grain, with the flow of the studios, rather than against the studios. Now, Orson Welles didn't know Hitchcock well enough to know that Hitchcock himself had problems with the studio system. It just looked as if he was making conventional thrillers but i think th i think it's because hitchcock looked like a studio man to orson that orson wells didn't see the modernity in hitchcock enough mm. well i wonder i i think i think there was a film uh it wasn't the truffaut on hitchcock film perhaps it was where it was observed that you have a completely self-contained psychology in Alfred Hitchcock's movies. We're only dealing with his issues, is mainly what he's concerned with. Is every film's gonna have somebody falling, and it, a lot of the similar themes. But I, I also recall, I think the battle, the battle over Citizen Kane, one of my favorite documentaries with Orson, uh, Robert Wise says, this began as a, a, a kind of biography of Hearst, but it really became an autobiography of Orson Welles if you look at it 50 years after it's made. He, he is forecasting where he's going to end up. And I, I wonder if you had that sensation as you were making the eyes of, of Orson. Um, I don't know, just a, a recontextualization of, of your relationship to Citizen Kane over the years as you learn more about the artist behind it who made it. Yeah, I think that... Certainly when I saw Citizen Kane when I was a boy, I didn't respond to it very much. Mm. Uh, I wasn't moved, and now I'm very moved by it. Um, and so that's the fact that I'm now in my 50s and then I was in my teens, you know. So certainly Citizen Kane remains in your pocket throughout your life, and you take it out and have a look at it, and then you put it back in, and you take it out a decade later. And so that's certainly true. And um, there's this weird kind of, energy about Citizen Kane that it's made by a very young man about an older man and about aging and about looking back and so it means that it's its timeline is very very interesting and so it means that you can jump into that timeline at any point in your life when you're a teenager or when you're middle-aged and when you're older and it's still resonating in some way it's still saying something so certainly it's the one citizen kane is the film of orson wells is that has changed in my eyes quite a lot you know the one for me the even more than that is macbeth but 
it is a film that stays with you and nourishes you as you go through the contours of your own life. Yeah. Well, and what's your what's your feeling about the the Shakespeare in in Orson's work? I mean, I know Chimes at Midnight from from Eyes of Orson is is a, a big film for you, but I mean, Othello is one that has really risen in terms of how it hits me, just because it it also is this demarcation of the younger Orson, I mean, like, I think somebody said of him, a skinny man can play a fat man, a fat man cannot play a skinny man. And he's about to move into, as Brando did, this beautiful young guy to this gigantic guy. Um, Othello does seem like this delineation a little bit in his presence on screen. Um, I'm just wondering what, what, what those films he made of Shakespeare. The dubbing I find really hard to watch. But but I still find them just just majestic visually. Yeah, um, I think you know Orson Welles attacked Shakespeare like like a knife fighter or something. You know, he slashed Shakespeare to bits, and that's why his Shakespeare films in general are so valuable because there's too much reverence in the way filmmakers approach Shakespeare. You know, and and the camera stays back and it observes. But that's not the case with Orson Welles, as we know. And whether it's Othello, as you say, you know that Orson Welles sort of threw himself into Othello and created a kind of vortex a production vortex out of which came this film. Um, and that's exciting because he, it's almost like the production process itself captures the passion in Shakespeare. And then when you look at Macbeth, which was, you know, one of Orson Welles's least uh, well reviewed films and it's also I think one of his best films um, you see again the extremity of the almost punk approach to Orson Welles uh, to, to, uh, to Shakespeare and that combination of Orson Welles and Shakespeare uh, becomes so valuable for that reason you have got these two incredibly passionate artists who between whom kind of sparks fly yeah. Well, what was it like for you making, what, what inspired uh, the eyes of Orson for you? Because I mean, retracing the steps of him, it's something that I've done a lot of where movies I've loved, I've gone to where they've been filmed and sort of gone to where the filmmaker or um, artist was from. This was something that I was thinking about in relation to talking to Ken Burns and Lynn Novick with Hemingway is I can't think of a writer that has inspired a bigger industry of tourism or pilgrimages than Hemingway. Every place that he loved or wrote about or frequented is now an awful place to go to because of the Hemingway industry of tourism and who it draws in now. Um, but the way that you approached Orson with such reverence and tenderness uh, and I've seen some of those locations, but many others I haven't to go to Morocco and where he grew up and then uh, where, where I was actually living before the pandemic in Harlem. Um, I have made those treks and, and I like to walk by them all the time. And I'm not sure why, but it's this relationship to a ghost in, in a way with Orson. I, I just wonder uh, what that was like for you as somebody who clearly has such feeling and passion for him. Yeah, you want to surf the wave, don't you? You know, it's like, you know, a lot of our, a lot of the time in our lives, we feel 
uh, slightly that we're under living, that we're slightly sleepwalking through life in a way, you know, and the, because it's hard to live and, you know, do the housework and put food on the table, all those practical things. And so it's um, we I think as human beings, generally, we crave to fully imagine what it's like to, to be alive, to be conscious. And when we go to Harlem, where Orson Welles was, or when we go to where Hemingway, Hemingway sites in Spain or else, we sort of, it's like we're riding their their wave. You know, Colonel, Colonel, Wild has, Colonel West has this lovely phrase, um, riding the dissonance. And I think that's the case. Orson Welles rode the dissonance. What that meant is, you know, the brilliance of being alive and the pain of being alive are, the, we all feel those things and Orson Welles, Welles felt them and he registered both. And you can see in, his, in the films that he made in Spain or America or whatever, you can feel the joy, the rapture of being alive and also the tragedy of power and manipulation and masculinity and all sorts of things. And why would, you know, that's a brilliant thing. And if we feel that our everyday lives is sli are slightly under-imagined, then of course we're gonna to want to go to the Orson Welles sites. Of course we're wanting to go to the places where Hemingway lived. Yeah. Was there any revelations about going to them? I mean, whatever preconceptions you had about what they would be to actually see them, um, like I, I've spent a lot of time in Rhonda where Orson's ashes are spread. And I, I think I remember asking a waiter, do you have any idea how to get to the Ordonez farm and this well? And, and he like wrote a map for me to go out. And I, it was, I don't know, a two hour trek to get there, but you can't access it. Um, but it is, it is interesting to go for somebody who is this great example of what could have been, not, not that I don't love what we have from Orson's canon, but he is somebody where you have to think of a counterfactual of what films could have been made if the, I don't know, the right financing was there. I just hate the idea, as he said, that 99% of his life was spent chasing money to make the stuff he wanted to make. Yeah, that's true. And that's, um, that's the problem with the system. You know, if the market didn't fail then there'd be more Orson Welles films. And that's certainly true. And also, you know, he an anticipated the idea, idea of the essay film. And so he would have been able right. to make, if he had lived 20 years later, he could have made a lot more. Uh, to answer your question about, you know, revelations or whatever, you know, it can be a disappointment if you trek to somewhere almost like a pilgrimage. And then uh, when you get there, you know, you can feel disappointed. Oh, is this where Orson Welles lived? Is this where Hemingway did something, you know? But uh, for me, it's never a disappointment because I often feel that, you know, the world and culture and excitement and innovation and uh, is something that is that happened elsewhere. And it's hard to realize that that innovation and excitement is 
in me and in you, and it's happening here and now. And so when I go to a place where Orson Welles did something brilliant, like Venice, California, or whatever, and you stand there and you realize it's just an ordinary place like any other, that can either be disappointing or it can be exciting. And I choose to find it exciting because you think, well, if this place... One of, if in this place one of the greatest shots in the history of cinema, the opening shot in Touch of Evil happened, then brilliance can happen anywhere. Right here, here in Edinburgh, Scotland, at, on an, uh, an afternoon, you know, it can happen here as well. And that's valuable. That's incredibly valuable. One of, one of the things I loved about the film that was a revelation for me was about the relationship that Orson had to his mother and how her involvement in activism, progressive activism, profoundly shaped his awareness of things where he was so far ahead of the curve yeah. in terms of race uh, and Latin America, the work he did in, in Brazil on behalf of FDR and that kind of thing. But I think that that is so useful because I, I'm Canadian, but I'm, I'm in a country that venerates um, To Kill a Mockingbird where I think the theme of that book is completely unearned enlightenment. I don't understand why Atticus Finch understands the injustice of a, a black man being persecuted unfairly. He just does, and the family does, and then every American who reads it says, we'd be just like them, which I don't believe they would be. <laughs> They'd be part of the mob that is trying to indict the person. <laughs> so I thought what you did really effectively was just show how Orson learned what was wrong mm -hmm. with things from his mother. And I, 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 I host another podcast with Stephen Benedict, a film critic in Ireland, and he mentioned that he teaches um, some of your work in school, and he, he asked me to say to you, uh, your series Women in Film is something that had many of his students in tears because they had really discounted their the possibility of them being able to be involved with films until they they heard what you had to say about it and that just seemed to carry over i thought a lot into how you introduced the, the incredibly powerful effect of wells's mother on his life so i just i just wonder with, with how you approach gender in your work uh, what informs that and inspires it well, I, I feel that, you know, that gender is a kind of construct, you know, and like uh, many people have said that in the past, but when I was growing up, I didn't feel particularly male or particularly um, female in any way, you know, and so I felt that um, the art that excited me was often the strongest the strongest people in my life were women i went to a convent school so there are all these women uh, everywhere and so in order how did i who did i who did i identify with it was often women and it was and in terms of music it was like somebody like tammy wynette from american culture you know and and especially when you're bullied and, and it was a man of course it was it was a man who bullied in our school then you start to look for where for empathy wherever you can find it and that's what happened with me um, and so it was very easy for me to make a very long 14-hour film about uh, the women filmmakers the great women filmmakers uh, example because it was um 
because gender is not a barrier to something it, it it's dangerous if we say that as a woman uh, women only look in certain ways or men only look in certain ways uh, it's dangerous if we talk about the female gaze or the male gaze because we imprison people and we say that they are restricted to that their gender stops them seeing more broadly and i think you know as a filmmaker, my gender does not stop me seeing more broadly. Yeah. It's it's interesting also. I, I, I guess I keep reverting back to the Hemingway thing, but um, watching six hours of Hemingway with a film where they consciously put half the people in front of the camera and half the people behind the camera were women, um, it, I think, will remind the audience or inform the audience that... At the age of 21, he was writing about date rape from the perspective of a woman who was date raped. And a few years later in Hills, Hills Like White Elephants, it's abortion from the perspective of a woman pressured into submission to have an abortion. Hemingway took big risks confronting toxic masculinity in the 20s and introducing bisexual characters, androgyny, which is a huge theme in his personal life. But I wanted to ask you, like with Wells, I was always confused early on kind of about his sexuality and some of his relationship with women. It's, it's enigmatic in a way. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, I don't have an agenda in asking the question. I just always wanted a curiosity with him. Um, he kind of perpetuated a bit of a reputation as a ladies' man, a womanizer, but I, I never really had a sense of sexual chemistry with him with any woman on screen other than Oya Kadar. That's the only time I kind of felt sexuality from him. It's just an odd feature with him for me. Yeah, I think, I mean, he, I know a lot of people who knew him and I know his daughter, you know, and I think it's clear that he absolutely had a huge appetite for life. And yeah. part of that appetite was a sexual appetite. Mm -hmm. And most of that sexual appetite, I think almost all of that sexual ap appetite was for women, you know, but he was so hungry for everything, the desire for everything, that kind of, I think really very creative people um, are s so sponge-like that they want everything they cannot stop. And the thing is, when you look into Orson Welles, the thing that everybody says is that you'd be with him from nine in the morning to midnight, and then you'd go home exhausted, and he would call more friends and go through all night with another set of friends, you know. So that kind of hunger, that, let's call it desire, is overwhelming. Um, and so, yes, I mean, I think he was totally madly sexually in love with Rita Hayward and I think he was totally madly sexually in love with Marlena Dietrich and many of the other and oh yeah very very much so and you can see that an F for fake in the way he films her but that was not you know that, that does not define that that's not the end of Orson Welles's desire his yeah. de desire for buildings and for friendship and for power and for intoxication and um, for style and for a kind of mental flooding is not only uh, that's exactly how he was, but it's it's actually, I think, how a lot of human beings are as well. And so, you know, the, so I think that uh, the, the contemporary discourse about sexuality often um, 
tries to separate it from other types of desire, other types of hunger for food or travel or connection or excitement or affirmation or to, the desire to be seen. You know, yeah. Orson Welles was a huge, had a huge desire to be looked at as an exhibitionist, you know. And all these things are the same kind of centripetal energy that human beings have, I think. Yeah. And so it's almost like he can't talk really about Orson Welles' sexuality. Yes, he was, you know, massively in love with all these women, but he flirted outrageously with men as well, of course, you know. And um, he just was unstoppably hungry. I, I've always, I think, I think, as I mentioned to you, with sort of Mike Tyson being the gateway into reading, he was another figure who always wanted to perpetuate this reputation. I'm this voracious womanizer, but I thought you're also the complete caricature of a gay man in so many ways. Like even why you were bullied, yeah, but but even the way he was bullied as a kid, lisping. Um, a bit, very much a mama's boy and that sort of thing. It's just interesting to straddle these two extremes in, uh, you know, what do they say? Uh, from from the passion, trace the wound. Is yes. this true of so many people? The you know, there's this this um, lovely idea called the accursed share. It's the uh, extra bit of life after you've done the stuff you have to do to live the the extra bit the accursed share is the bit where euphoria kicks in where a kind of need for something that you know isn't rational rational is required and under lockdown we you know where we've all sort of survived and existed i think a lot of people are craving this accursed share and orson wells would really understand that uh one of the things i love that you said is how the world has increasingly become wellsian yeah and and you you mentioned that i think in the specific context was post 9 11 but another aspect of it was uh it was a revelation to me when i i did a long interview with errol morris he in his uh office building that he owns um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, he mentioned to me that that Citizen Kane was Donald Trump's favorite film, and that when he was interviewing Trump, um, they, they talked extensively about it, and he showed it to me there in the studio. Um, what, do you, what, what do you make about not just the 9-11 creating the exaggerated America that we have now, the paranoia, um, I love that in the trial, Anthony Perkins said, I think Wells told him, you did it in this version. <laughs> it's not that you're innocent. What if you actually did it? Um, what, did you see a lot of that, a, a lot of the well, the exaggerated Wellsian America with, with Trump's ascendancy? Yes, that's what I meant when I, when I said the world's come Wellsian. I was thinking of Donald Trump in particular, you know, because that hyper power, that or, that... Orson Welles' fascination with the ubermensch, the superman, you know, and and so definitely in the Trump era, which thank, thankfully, hopefully we can slightly refer to it in the past tense, you know, that was extremely Wellesian. The um, borderline kitsch flexing of muscles, you know, that we saw with Donald Trump and 
you know, Donald Trump, if he was more informed, he would have thought, you know, he would have seen Mr. Arkadin or one of those films, you know, and Donald Trump, because, you know, there was this kind of tunnel, tunnel vision, he wouldn't have realized that Kane is a critique of, of this kind of power. But certainly, you know, and, and, and also, Another thing that Donald Trump said is that, you know, Orson Welles, uh, he admired Orson Welles because of his taste in women, i.e. Rita Hayworth, you know, and, yeah. and so I think that, you know, if you've, you've got an extremely under, undereducated man like Donald Trump, who's got his own extremely narrow psychological dimensions, he's going to be obsessed by Citizen Kane without understanding any of its context or its politics or its society, or its values, but I'm not surprised, you know, and I think that you could see Donald Trump in a, in a you can see Donald Trump in Othello, you can see it in, uh, certainly, certainly in Mr. Arkadin, Confidential Report. Maybe a little Falstaff, too? Uh, you know, I think there's a kindness in the heart of Falstaff that, let's be kind to Donald Trump, that was which was leached out of him by his family upbringing. So I don't know. I I would say actually Donald Trump is closer to Prince Hal than mm. Paul Staff. Fault I fault to thy prayers. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wonder for you with you know making the career you've had. It seems like an unusual career. Like I I don't know how I would say to a kid who wanted to embark on Mark Cousins' career. Here's how you do it. Here's the template of how you do it. When you look at somebody with the incredible talents of Wells, do we have to give him most of the credit in terms of self-destructing? I mean, how much was there an impulse to self-sabotage with Wells? I don't, you know, I don't buy, Bryn, I don't buy the self-sabotage myth particularly. I don't think want Orson Welles wanted to hurt himself. I think the problem, the main problem was that he had an extremely expensive lifestyle. He would only stay in fancy hotels and he would only drink expensive champagne and eat in the best restaurants. If you've got that lifestyle, then it means that it's very hard to live and it's very hard to make movies because you need a lot of money just to survive. Yeah. And I think, therefore, that's the root of his difficulty. I think he, he knew how to work with low budgets, etc. But I think that it, it was his lifestyle that caused him to make fewer films than we would like. I don't buy the self-sabotage argument, I was going to say particularly, but actually at all. He was desperate to make films and but we can't only blame other people we can blame him but not for the reasons that most people do which is the self-sabotage which is a kind of freudian self-hatred thing i think it was simpler than that that he just you know wanted to live the high life an aristocrat a sort of you know louis 14 or something like that and he couldn't sustain that i guess i guess when i looked at his work i i always have the sense with him i think it was said that if he was kind of of the view that if you got applause or a standing ovation, like any half talented person can do that. What I want is gasps. I want to terrify people mm -hmm. with things. And I mean, you look at the audacity of the work. Mm -hmm. It is a high wire act. Like he, he is never going to walk an idea down the sidewalk. He's going to be 
up there, like between the twin towers, walking a tightrope. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I, I not that I think that that is uh, flirting with disaster, but I always feel his sense of risk with his work. Like there's very little of his work that ever seems prosaic or pedestrian. It always seems dangerous. And I wonder what, why is that? Why, what is it about him that couldn't just make a conventional film that would hit it out of the park commercially and then make 10 of his own with the proceeds? Because here's my attempt at an answer to this. I don't know if that's true, but I think for somebody, people with an irregular imagination, an ordinary imagination, see the kind of normal way of doing things and then above that is the wild way of doing things you know yeah so you think that that top thing is wild or unusual or audacious for orson wells i don't think he saw all that ordinary that whole bit of ordinary imagination. I don't think he saw that. And so what you're calling the audacious, the audacity was just normal for him. So it's not that he chose, it's not that he thought, here are all the conventional ways of doing it and here's a weird way to do it and I'm going to do the weird bit. His imagination was such that the weird bit, the wild bit seemed normal to him. Yeah. So that if that's true, and I think it is true, then it wasn't that he was making contrary cho- choices. He wasn't trying to shock people or alienate people. It was just how his mind worked, his yeah. visual mind worked. I'm I'm pretty sure that's the case. So it meant that any material that he touched, he naturally turned it into something that the regular imagination would find unusual. Hmm. Can I can I probe with you just a little bit um, philosophically about Wells and the intersection between magic and art with something yes. that I can kind of turn yes. over? I, I have been doing a, a profile on DBC Pierre, and I started thinking about, who's a big fan of, you, of your work also, um, we went to Mexico City to do a profile. <laughs> Uh, and spent a few days together, and 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 I I want to see your film on Mexico City. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but what I was intrigued by with him is that still, eighteen years after his big big success with a Booker Prize winning novel at forty two years old, everybody is writing about the backstory. Everybody is writing about, in essence, how the magic trick works of you're not supposed to be able to write a novel that's that successful when you have no background in writing or anything like that. Whereas uh, I think in the movie The Prestige, there is the comment made, never betray the secret of your trick because you will mean nothing to them, to anybody who's begging to understand how the trick works. It will feel cheap. It will remind them that you're not a magician, that you're a deceiver, you're a conjurer, you're a con man. But with art, it's the opposite thing that happens. As we learn about Orson Welles as a man and what he struggled against, it increases his artwork. Um, at least for me, it does. And I think you could certainly say, I think objectively, if we didn't have the letters of Vincent van Gogh, 
he would not be who Vincent van Gogh is because of the personal connection that people have had with the backstage past. We've never had an artist with this much literature about the creative process of a struggling artist. And I wonder why that is, why there's this divergence with magic and with art that revealing the artist behind the art intensifies our connection to them. But with magic, it distances you from the magician. Yeah, that's a very complicated question and a very good question. <laughs> yes. And, and I, I don't know how to answer that, to be honest, Brenda. I would say something like, you know, it's easier for people, it's easier for us as a community, as a society, to see imagination as a thing that grows out of somebody's background, you know, their society, their family, their sexuality, their race, their class, whatever. It's easier for us to connect those things. We're interested in the roots, what the French call the terroir, you know, the, the ground in which the grapes grow. So I think, you know, partly to do with journalism, you know, we are really interested in finding out where somebody comes from as a human being and therefore where their imagination comes from. And magic is different, of course, because as you say, that we want to keep the illusion intact. Um, but I, um, I wonder if, I, th I think that we are we human beings are uncomfortable in thinking of the imagination as a thing in itself mm. that is also a bit disconnected to the terroir, the ground in which we 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 grow, you know. So it's very easy to talk to anybody and and try to join the dots between what they think of and where they came from. And there's a good story there. There's a human story there, and that's great. But also, we have to allow the fact that they're, what they might come from, what, what they might think of comes from nowhere. Mm. And a great Northern Irish poet, Seamus Heaney, said, uh, imagination is a ball kicked in from nowhere. Huh. And it's that nowhere, you know, that is really hard to compute and it makes us all uncomfortable. I think, you know, that stuff might come into our your mind or my mind. I'm not talking about genius or anything like that. Anybody's mind. And it might come from basically, it might be entirely unrelated to where we come from. We might not be who we were brought up to be. And I think that uh, it doesn't quite answer your question because it's such a good question, I'm not able to answer it, but it means that in all our artists in Orson Welles or Van Gogh, we are looking for the backstory, the exoskeleton, the thing that holds the artist up as a human being. And the thing about magic is that, you know, we sort of maybe we maybe we're we should get better at believing that nothing holds them up. At least that way we can look at the work um in a kind of isolation. And the film that I'm one of my recent films, Women Make Film, which is a very long piece of work, talks about 183 women filmmakers, and I ask almost nothing about what formed them. Mm. I simply ask what did they make? Mm. And it's a good question, you know, I think just don't try to explain them, just what did they make? 
Right. Well, and I know that Orson subscribed very heavily to the concept of, I think in his words, presiding over di divine accidents. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, what does that mean to you in, in your work? What, what have been the divine accidents that you've presided over? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not so good, not as good as, I'm not good as anything as Orson was, obviously, but what he meant by that is, you know, if you create a kind of chaos, and if you stay up to four o'clock in the morning and you drink a bottle of absinthe, then something will come along from that chaos, you know. And... Um, my version of that, what I, the way I understand that, because I don't, I can't get into his mind because it was so great. I do think that, you, you know, if you distract yourself when you're trying to invent something, if you're trying to come up with a good idea for a scene or a bit of writing or anything, if you try not to focus too distract too too directly on it and distract yourself, then your unconscious mind might do the work and throw it up for you. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, if you're trying to think of someone's name and you can't think of their name, don't keep trying to think of it. Think of something else, and then the name will come to you. And lots of great writers like Virginia Woolf, one of my heroes, and Walter Benjamin, another one of my heroes, they all talk about this idea of distracting yourself uh, so that your creative juices can flow, so your subconscious can do its thing. And maybe that's related to what Orson Welles meant by presiding over these extraordinary accidents <laughs> uh, my last couple questions are just uh what were the three biggest surprises positive surprises in making the eyes of of orson and maybe the three biggest obstacles that arose in trying to make it because i mean you sure covered a lot of ground literally and and metaphorically yeah before i made this film i knew a lot about orson wells so i thought i wouldn't learn anything um I didn't know how good he was with pen and ink. You know, when you look at the actual drawings, I think the line is really good. And I like to draw myself. I'm not a very good drawer, but the line is really good. I didn't know. My second thing, I didn't know how into Christmas he was. I know that's how trivial. I just didn't. I mean, he was a big Christmas guy. He was a big... He put he you know he seemed to love family and home and Christmas and all that stuff. And um, the obstacles are the usual obstacles, you know, how not to be banal, how to be inventive, how not to do the obvious thing. That's always the biggest obstacle. The it's easier to do the conventional way to tell a tell a film in a conventional way. And so I tried not to do that. And it's always hard to jump that fence. Um, you know, the other obstacles are related to that. If you're making a documentary, people assume you will interview lots of people. That's the way that you make a documentary. And I only, I think I only interviewed one person, which is Orson Welles' daughter. Um, and so you have to convince the people around you, your, your funders and your producers, etc. No, I won't do that. I know how to do that type of, of filmmaking, which is interviewing people, but we're not going to do that. We're going to try for something else. And that's an obstacle is to convince uh, the funders and the producers to be more bold. Mm. Um, I guess my last question would just be, 
at this stage in your career, is this what you imagined in any way your career would be when you embarked on a career as a filmmaker? Uh, I didn't even think I would be a filmmaker, but once I embarked on it... Um, what did you think it would be? Sorry, well, I'm curious. Well, I, you know, given my background, I thought I would work at a supermarket or something like that. You know, I thought I would do a regular job and, you know, and it's never too late. And I also thought I might be a maths teacher. I think I would be a good maths teacher. Um, uh, but um, I started, I started first, for, I started directing in 1989 when the industry, the film industry was, you know, big and very male and you needed six people to do even a relatively simple day-long shoot. So it was hard to imagine the kind of personal, intimate cinema that I make where I, I use a very small camera and I shoot and sometimes I rec also sound record myself. And so the intimacy and the personal nature of the kind of cinema that I make was very hard to imagine back then. Uh, but I have to say that, say that I think... I had a sense that there was something wrong with that old in industry, which was so male and so technology driven. I, th I think I knew that there was something wrong and a new kind of film industry, a new way of filmmaking would come along. And it did. What, uh, what, what What's ahead for you? So I have, I'm have i releasing three films this year. I make a massive number of films. So I've got a film, uh, three premieres in quite high-profile places that I can't, unfortunately, tell you about exactly. But um, uh, so three new films. <laughs> and two, two, more, two more almost completed. So basically, I've got five films ready to come out. So you've been the most productive person during lockdown of anybody in the world. <laughs> Well, when my when my grandmother was bored, my granny was bored, a we a working class lady in Belfast, she would go out into her kitchen and make cakes and bread. And when you're bored, you make stuff. And so during lockdown, I've been bored, so I've just made stuff like my granny. Ha! I look I look forward to seeing it. Thank you so much for your time today, Mark. Well, how, how nice to talk to you, Brian. That's very nice. Terrific. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to online meet, at least. Pleasure and you too, Brennan. See you soon, I hope. Good luck. Likewise. Take care, Mark. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening. <laughs>